right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this podcast, my co-host, my co-host Sam Moyne, and I talk about legal theory and uh, whatever else is on our mind, and generally uh, shoot the shit with with a guest about a new project. Um, Sam, who do we have with us this week? It's our colleague and and good friend Tai Su Zhang. He has a new book coming out in November called "The Ideological Foundations of Qing Taxation," and we get deep into it. Actually, we get really deep into it. It's really this this fall. Everything is coming up. Tai Su, um, his his beloved Buffalo Bills are doing really well. He's got a new book out, and uh, and this conversation I think captures not only the richness of the book, and the book is awesome, but also. Um, Taisu's particular uh, ideological and methodological commitments, which are extremely interesting and uh, somewhat unique. So um, it's a real barn burner. Let's get to it. It's our great privilege to welcome to this episode, uh, Taisu Zhang, our wonderful colleague at Yale Law School, who is the author of two books, including the new one, which we'll be discussing today, The Ideological Foundations of Qing Taxation, Belief Systems, Politics, and Institutions, which is just out uh, or imminently out from Cambridge University Press. So Tysoon, on this podcast, normally I have to kind of play Demi Moore in A Few Good Men and uh, let David have a moment as Tom Cruise and ask whether I missed the day they taught law in law school. But this is a different experience because I get to adapt uh, a line from another film, Ghostbusters, and ask you to imagine that I never majored in history, never went to grad school in history. And just tell me, like, what was the Qing and you know, why is it important? All right, great. Um, first of all, thank you guys for having me on the show. It's a real privilege and looking forward very much. Um, so the Qing is China's last imperial dynasty before uh, there was a there was a massive revolt against the old system by the elites and return into republican and then communist forms of government. Uh, why is it important? Because, you know, first of all, it's 300 years of Chinese history. It also happens to be the 300 years that basically immediately precedes what we call the modern era in Chinese history. And so it sets the stage uh, for pretty much everything that's going on in China that people are more familiar with. Uh, all the reasons why, you know, like you guys, i.e. you Americans see China as a threat today, have some foundation in my mind and what happened in the city. Okay, so um, this is actually the second volume in a, a planned trilogy uh, and you say in, in the early going, which we're going to focus on as kind of outsiders, uh, along with the all-important last chapter, which in which you think about kind of general uh, considerations, uh, you, you say that your general problem is, you know, what historians uh, have been calling for a while, the great divergence. Um, and I guess I, I want to press on why you think that question is about explaining Chinese divergence, which you attempt to do in in all three books, and in this one by looking at you know um, kind of ta- taxation, especially agricultural taxation in China, and why essentially it wasn't it wasn't higher. Um, and I, I guess I'm confused because I would have thought that the problem would be better framed as European divergence or European and Japanese. Uh, 
so the, the, because it's what we're really trying to explain in this global debate is not Chinese decline. You say that, you use that phrase. It seems like it's more Chinese failure to launch. That's, a, you know, the title of a, yet a third film. Um, and so, like, if that's true, then we need stories like John Brewer's about the kind of the British fiscal state, the, mil- the fiscal military state and the sinews of power illustrating Western divergence. Why did Britain or wherever, you know, outside China take off? Um, and if there are limits in China, they would be more the norm than the exception. So why are you framing it in terms of like China, China's problem rather than this specificity somewhere else? So, so like the, any divergence always has at least two sides to it. In this case, uh, you know, like what you guys, well, let me refrain from using that phrase too much. Um, what Western historians like to call the rise of the West is, as you say, a global phenomenon that has multiple sides to it. In Western Europe, you basically look at why Britain industrialized first and how the French and Germans caught up, yada, yada. Uh, in, in the East Asian context, yes. Like Prior to the 1980s, the most common discussion was why did Japan catch up so fast, whereas the rest of, the rest of uh, Asia didn't manage to do that. Um, from the Chinese point of view, obviously, the question is different because... You know, like ours is a is a story of relative decline. You know, we start off as one of like, on a per capita basis one of the richest countries in the world around uh, I don't know like twelve hundred AD, uh, and then by eighteen hundred we're obviously quite far behind. And the reason why I focus on the particular Chinese side of the story is you know I have an interest in explaining Chinese history and explaining Chinese politics as they are currently, um, and. The claim basically is nothing in modern Chinese history would have happened the way it is, the, the way that it actually did, without the Chinese relative decline. And for that relative decline, you know, like yes, one question is why did Europe pull ahead? Um, but given that you know China goes from a position of strength to a position of distinct weakness, you also can ask the question: what you know, like how did China fall behind? And well, the intuitive answer might be. China fell behind for all the same reasons that everybody else fell behind. It's just because the English got first. Um, but then again, the Chinese, there, there are certain unique things about the Chinese experience. First of all, compared to peers of comparable economic sophistication, it actually industrialized at a much slower pace, right? So like it, it, even as, as late as 1860, there wasn't much separating Japan and China economically. Over the next 80 years, Japan becomes this massive industrial power, whereas China is still more or less languages in poverty uh, and remains a pre-industrial economy. Uh, now, on this specific book, uh, the question of fiscal policy, this is actually more uniquely Chinese, right? Because let me put it this way, no other early modern state that I know of is like the Chinese state. Like no other fiscal, like early modern fiscal state is this weak. Um, the English perhaps are somewhat unusually strong, but you know the French, the Germans, even the American state in the 18th century and 19th century, which is not known for being a strong state, all of them were several orders of magnitude stronger fiscally than the Chinese state. Right. So in in, in a lot of ways, right, you know, you can you like, not every not every country has to have the same explanation for why it fell behind Britain. In the Chinese case, there are certain unique characteristics, such as an un well, pretty much a uniquely weak state that have to be central to the story. Okay, you 
you cover this, I just want to get clear in my mind about w- one kind of re- related um, hypothesis about why other places took off, whereas China did not. And I mentioned that, you know, sometimes we Western historians refer to physical military states um, uh, and it's now hip to at throw in slaveholding uh, and the slave trade as as something that may have been distinctive. But regardless, why 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 isn't it um, credible to look at the purposes for which taxes were raised in the states taking off? such as girding for war and say that's the reason and then it's not a problem that China didn't take off because it wasn't doing so. Right. So, so yeah, th- this is probably like the single most popular explanation, I think, in the field for the relative weakness of the Chinese state, which is basically yeah, China's a uh, less warlike, more easily unified place that fights fewer wars. You could own that, you know, and and you know, celebrate the Chinese, you know, pacifist contribution. Right, except that it's not exactly true, right? So Uh, so you look look at the entire Qing, its entire 270-year history, there really only were, was like a 30-year span in the middle where the state was not fighting considerable wars. 30, 40 years, and like maybe somewhere in the middle. Um, Other than that, you know, the, the Qing starts off being a conquest dynasty, it fights major campaigns in northwestern China up until the 1780s. Uh, then it faces a considerable rebellion uh, inside China around 1800. And after that, it's 1840 and the Opium War. Right? So after the Opium War, China fights wars at pretty much the same intensity um, and same frequency as any country on Earth, perhaps more so compared to most other countries. And again, the, the Sino-Japanese comparison here is quite instructive. Uh, in a lot of ways, post-1860, China was under greater foreign military pressure than Japan was, and yet Japan had to va- build a vast, vastly stronger state much more quickly. So there are a lot of things about the war narrative that don't quite work. That said, uh, I'm, I wouldn't deny that you know, like the relative peacefulness of this like 70-year span from perhaps uh, 1770 to 1840 you know, it may have caused a bit of stagnation in Chinese fiscal policy making, but even then, it's only you know this is about one fourth of the entire story, so you can't you can't put too much on it. So, the central thesis of this book, as I understood it, is basically the absence of Chinese taxes, the weakness of the Chinese fiscal state, led to a decline economically and militarily as well, because they didn't invest in the things you'd need, infrastructure and direct support for industry. And so there's an absence of capital accumulation coming through the state that we see in other places. Um, and the central thesis for why is that the Qing was convinced or convinced that agricultural taxes, which is the main source of taxation in most places, um, uh, would lead to rebellion because that's how they interpreted happened to previous dynasties. Um, you note that the ideology of low taxation has some ideological uh, confusion elements, but it's mostly a belief about likely consequences. Um, so they did not uh, develop uh, agricultural taxes, uh, meet, and and then they developed limits on their ability to even collect agricultural taxes, so they couldn't even do it if they wanted to. But this, I just want to ask you to kind of lay out why do we know that they were wrong? So the um, the 
I mean, you can do comparative work and say other people raised their taxes, but like, I don't know, they were there, they knew things. It's very hard to iron out variation um, uh, or to deal with fixed effect, or however you want to think about it um, in this context. How is it that you're sure that they are wrong, that uh, they rather that they were not constrained in this way and that had they raised agricultural tax, it would have led to rebellion? Right. Okay. So th- that, that's great. Um, so the most obvious reason uh, is that, well, you don't have to compare it to other countries, right? So it, starting from 1908 onwards, the, both the Qing government and its successors raise agricultural taxes out of desperation. Lo and behold, the peasants don't rebel because at this point, agricultural taxes are so low that really they can they can accommodate quite a large tax increase and not really care that much about fighting off it like fighting it off. Now, the thing is, you know, like the Qing's control over its population almost certainly declined over the last like 80 years of the dynasty, right? So if you can pull off a tax increase in 1908 and not have peasants rebel for that reason, it stands to reason that you could probably do the same thing in 1840, 1830, uh, 1780, so on and so forth, or, or for that matter, 1870, 1880. Um, you know, the, the, so so you could, of course, like it's tempting to say, well, after they raised taxes in 1909, the dynasty collapses. And in, 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 I'm sorry, like after they raised taxes in 1908, um, the, the dynasty collapses in 1911. Uh, but I think no Chinese historian would say that the 1911 re- revolution had much to do with high taxes. It was done for other reasons. And the regimes that followed the Qing learned the lesson that they didn't learn the lesson that you can't raise taxes or else they're going to be revolution. Instead, they learned the lesson that actually look at the thing. They managed to raise taxes. It was fine. We're going to raise taxes even more. So from 1908 onwards up until pretty much the 1960s, every single tax, every single Chinese regime learns the lesson that you can raise more taxes and the peasants will be, will be okay with it. And so they keep raising taxes until by the 1950s, agricultural taxes are pretty much on a per capita basis, 10 times what they were in the late Qing. And the peasants can still tolerate that. So looking at that history, it becomes very hard to think that at any point in the relatively stable, well-controlled mid to like mid-ting, you raise taxes and the peasants are going to kill you. It almost certainly wasn't going to happen. Okay, so I want to step back uh, before David, you know, pursues some some of kind of of the 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 the, the details of of this thesis and ask about kind of your approach as a scholar. And since, you know, we know each other, I can, I'm basically want to get as quickly as possible to what bewilders me about you. So it's, it's basically like, you seem like a self-hating humanist. Let me explain. I mean, your basic goal in these books is to say, uh, that we, we, we need, we need some kind of cultural and, and, or ideological account to supplement uh, a kind of economistic explanation of choice and policy in life. And in, in this case, basically there's background Confucianism and then there's this this Malthusian fear of, of agricultural subsistence price crises that, that you kind of acknowledge may have arisen as a kind of rationalization of prior Confucian uh, belief. Um, and I... Uh, that's all very interesting, but it seems as if you um, 
cons- you insist that uh, culture and ideology matter, but with e- enormous anxiety, as if there weren't like humanistic traditions and whole departments and fields that pursue that very approach. Uh, you spend your time, the bulk of your pages, arguing with those who adopt the most kind of simple-minded, vulgar explanations of human affairs, instead of exploring, you know, the rich traditions that, for for in which it's obvious that culture and ideology are the central things to explore and ponder, including through, you know analyzing religion, reading texts, uh, and so forth. So I, I guess I'm basically confused about why there's so much effort to convince these obdurate, uh, you know, people you call rationalists, uh, that I, I'm not sure we should adopt that label, but whatever, that actually human beings have culture and ideology when that's obvious. Only some of them. Well, only some of them. But l- 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 let me say one thing right off the bat. I don't, I don't think I'm a self-hating humanist. That would assume that I'm a humanist at all. Um, I think, you know, like, between the two of us, like, you're the humanist. I'm distinctly a social scientist. Uh, I prefer that history be in the social sciences, not in the humanities. But I recognize that I can't win that fight. But then, you know, at least in my own books, I get to pick my my, my own battles. Um, and the reason why I'm a social scientist is that I fundamentally care about arguing for historical causation. And I do think that for all its virtues, the humanist side of history has, as far as I can tell, largely abandoned that entire enterprise. Um, the reason why I have to deal with the economists is that they do care about causation. And so most of the causal accounts and causal theories of Chinese fiscal fiscal decline and Chinese economic decline are done by these people who care about causation because there's no other way to tell that story, which means that the people who write about the things that I care about tend not to be the humanists. Um, So the, which means again, like the literature that I'm writing against is almost completely dominated uh, by what you call vulgar economists. And I wouldn't necessarily resist that label because I often I do think they're vulgar economists. Um, but they do constitute, you know, like pretty much 95% of the academic literature that I'm writing against. So it's impossible to be a responsible scholar in this field and not take them very seriously to the point where I have to spend entire chapters explaining why they're wrong first. And then after only after I clear the ground in that fashion can I get to my own theories. Um, that said, like, I also don't like generally, like, even if the economist didn't exist, I wouldn't like the way that culture is talked about in a lot of these humanistic fields, right? It strikes me as, um, ambiguous, shapeless, impossible to falsify, uh, impossible to have clear conceptualization of boundaries and so on and so forth. Like, it strikes me as the kind of thing where people are so interested in fetishizing context and, and, and complexity that they lose sight of any possible true analytical rigor. Um, and so methodologically speaking, I, I, I'm not a humanist is the, is, 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 I think the core thing. Like I want to be more structured. I want to be, uh, more causal. I want to be more conceptually, I guess, like 
clear and make my claims empirically falsifiable. I think a lot of these things are not things that most humanist scholars, what either in you know, certain writers of history or certain writers of, of cultural anthropology, I'm not sure these are things they care about. And many of these are, are explicitly things that they have disavowed as a methodology. So it's hard for me to become part of that camp. All right. Well, I get your quandary, but I still want to press a, a little bit on how you've resolved it because, you know, first off, maybe some things are complicated. Um, and, uh, you know, there might be a place for, you know, methodological pluralism. But even if you wanted to insist on the need for, you know, causal accounts and explanatory parsimony or, and you know, whatever, falsifiability of, of conjectures, blah, blah, blah. It seems like to me that, that it would be more... Um, fruitful to engage humanists and try to convince them of those things than to engage economists and convince them to, you know, overthrow their field because their field doesn't require those um, principles of, of social science um, or really science that you invoked. Uh, actually, it's based on, you know, those things, but also a lot of other, you know, it, uh, I think pretty implausible assumptions about uh, human rationality, what it is, how central it is. And and it's just there, it's not in view that they're going to give all of that up because it defines their discipline, whereas humanists are, are, are more corrigible. And we, we, we can try to, you know, engage in uh, more, more rigorous, cultural explanation because we're already trying to do it. So why not like write a book for us rather than these incorrigible economists? Right. Okay. So th th that's a really good question. Is it, is it harder to get a humanist to really care about causation than to get an economist to ditch strong versions of rationalistic assumptions? I'm not sure. Um, because you know, if you think about these things as a matter of intellectual method, then the refusal to do causal theories and the refusal to talk about causal to talk about causation in a lot of humanistic history is a fundamental is is a, is a very fundamental methodological uh, principle, right? It 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 takes a certain view of the past that you know rejects counterfactuals, rejects causation based on counterfactuals rejects any kind of causal thinking that follows more or less along that kind of logic. Um, and so for me, that's a very deep methodological incompatibility here, right? Like the kinds of things that I do simply would not be recognized as even epistemologically possible in certain kinds of interpretive humanistic uh, scholarly enterprises. The economists at least like share most of my core methodological commitments. They share different behavioral assumptions about, about human beings. But that strikes me as kind of like a, depending on how you define it, either higher level or lower level debate than this very fundamental difference on whether you should you can engage in counterfactual historical, like counterfactual causal analysis at all. Um, so it's it's kind of like, you know, like, trying to persuade economists um, of 
of irrationality and cultural influence and ideological influence strikes me as some as somewhat similar to you know like a physicist trying to uh, trying to trying to um, persuade another physicist that the physical model they're using is incorrect like newtonian physics as opposed to more modern versions and so on and so forth trying to persuade a humanist um of the kind of things that i'm trying to do sometimes feels like trying to persuade an artist to do physics and i don't think that's easier in in any ways right like the humanists wouldn't would reject the idea that people are that you know, they're more easily corrected or corrigible because they don't see the need for this kind of correction whatsoever. Whereas, at least if you poke hard enough at at empirical models and theoretical models, you can persuade economists of the need to to, to recognize culture. And there's been movement on that in recent years. So, I think the difference between me and a humanist goes deeper. So um, Sam's quoted a few movies here, and I wanted to quote one of his favorite back to him. He calls a vulgar economist. I'm going to quote Metropolitan, I think our collective favorite movie and the kind of favorite movie of the podcast for sure to say it's extremely vulgar. I like it a lot. Um, uh, so, but I want to get back into the, into the guts of the, uh, guts of the argument. Um, and I want to ask, um, the, I was broadly convinced by the thing that the absence of fiscal power did lead to certain, um, uh, limits on the ability to, uh, to, um, to support into industry and this played an important role in some comparative countries. And I think other people will not be convinced that, but I, I, I was, but I wonder whether the ideology of, um, of um of of like a low taxation ideology and the kind of worry about revolt was the only only ideological assumption that was driving a lot of this and whether the, another plausible the problem was the ideology of centralization so um, one the divergence literature is all about china and britain but given that you're studying really like the divergence you're talking about is really the late 19th century um it seems like the us and china are actually um like a pretty good comparison. They share, they certainly share lots weak external threats of invasion or weaker than in Europe, huge landmass, relatively weak fe, uh, federal institutions. Um, uh, um, and U.S. taxation in the 19th century was primarily local, particularly, by the way, agriculture or land or property taxation. Um, um, and this uh, leads, the fact that it was it was done by lo- particularly local governments leads many to understand the U.S. at this period as a weak state. But as William Novak argues, this conflates despotic power with infrastructural power. And in the period you're talking about, local governments were borrowing a lot, were taxing a lot, borrowing a lot, and spending a lot to build all of the infrastructure that we still know and love today, Central Park, the Brooklyn Bridge, um, as well as huge, huge amounts of fiscal support for railroads, which was the biggest industry of the time. And as uh, John Tiford and Alberta Spraguia argue, um, like this was actually like American infrastructure particularly got much better than it did in Central Europe because of its decentralization, um, because they didn't have to ask Berlin or London for permission. They could just build stuff in Buffalo. And as a result, like American cities are bigger. Uh, American infrastructure is much better. Um, and so I wonder a little bit about whether the story here is really one about excessive centralization and not some kind of deeper ideological or other ideological claim. I mean, the... Um, you'd imagine that local governance, which has many flaws, would be better at the kinds of things you're interested in. And so it's um, 
uh, it's more varied, so you get more variation, so there'd be some places succeeding and some places failing. The question of revolt might be better known to locals. Like, is this going to lead to revolt is the kind of thing that a local might know, but someone more distant might be more afraid of. Um, and the benefits of taxation is like someone like Barry Weingast would argue may be more captured locally and therefore more palatable. Um, uh, and you note in the book a couple of things like this, like the Ming had several, some decentralized government finance before the single whip reforms, um, which is an amazing term. And then in the late period, you did when you start seeing the rise of taxes in the uh, king, ching, ching, uh, that it uh, that it was extremely varied locally. So was centralization the main driving factor, or a like an equal footing as uh, as um, as kind of ideological like worries about revolt? Right, so that's that, that that's a very good question. Um, so, just to be clear about a couple of things, the the divergence between Qing fiscal practices and I think anywhere else in the world doesn't start in the late nineteenth century. The late nineteenth century is when the consequences of of that divergence become most obvious and crippling. But the divergence starts pretty much. Uh, Let's just say around 1680. But that would be the same as the American context. I mean, I mean, so it wouldn't help you with Britain, but like American taxation is extremely localized, um, and uh, uh, for this entire period, for that, for the entire period of American history, right? But but so so, so like less the audience to the podcast be confused as as to what exactly the story is. Um, 1680 is at the point where. And this is early on in the, in the Qing dynasty where they just decide we're just going to lock in agricultural taxation in absolute value from now on, and we're not going to touch it anymore. Um, that's a crazy thing to do when your economy and your and your population are both growing at very rapid paces uh, over the next two centuries. You know, like from eighteen from sixteen eighty to I don't know eighteen sixty, the Qing population triples, the Qing economy triples. Um, but government revenue and government revenue from agricultural taxes in absolute terms stays almost exactly the same across these nearly 200 years, or actually it stays pretty much almost exactly the same until 1908. So over 200 years, just some budge. And that's a, that, that's a really crazy way to govern a country because at some point your administration just can't keep up. You don't have the money and the resources um, to keep up with their population growth anymore. And so you have to, not, you have to naturally seed lots of administrative powers and uh, functions to local self-governance. So now going into centralization, right? So the, the sense in which all of these Chinese dynasties are centralized is a somewhat subtle one. They're centralized as a matter of administrative theory, but especially the Qing is incredibly decentralized uh, in terms of actual functional governance on the ground, right? So like most counties, most villages, are pretty much responsible for uh, enforcing their own customs, governing themselves, providing their own utilities, public works, maintaining roads, even you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, you know, um, sustaining militias uh, for security purposes. But where the centralization comes from is in all aspects of formal official governance, like the things that are formally salaried by the state and given formal bureaucratic rank, those things are all centralized. The Qing state won't recognize anything else as a kind of like state or semi-state actor, except what it centrally controls. And this is pretty much what it has in common with every other previous Chinese dynasty uh, across the you know, 2000 years of Chinese history, uh, going all the way back to um, 2000, more than 2000 years of Chinese history, history, going all the way back to the Qing dynasty and 200 BC. Um, 
But as you can see, right, like that kind of centralization is not the kind of centralization that a rational Weberian bureaucracy is assumed to be centralized, right? The, the state does not have real control over localities. It has control over local bureaucrats. But all that really means is that the local bureaucrats are really, really weak vis-a-vis their local populations. Um, now, that kind of mentality did matter uh, for certain kinds of ta- fiscal f- fiscal policymaking tendencies, right? So because, um, because you refuse to you know, like have anything but a centralized official bureaucracy across this massive state, you're always worried about corruption by your local officials driving local populations to unrest. And so therefore, you're always kind of like on edge about what they might do if you actually raise taxes. And that enhances your unwillingness to raise taxes if you were already so inclined. Um, Also, at the same time, like if you already have decided that we're not going to raise taxes, um, then this basically means that you're basically starving your local bureaucrats of the resources they need to actually maintain any semblance of coercive power. And this forces them to kind of like engage in ever stronger, deeper kinds of collaborations with the local population. And this gives the local population a lot of say in how much taxes it's willing to pay, right? Uh, including both formal and informal taxes. And this also kind of acts as a check against, you know, like local informal uh, tax um, tax surcharges and so on and so forth. So yes, I think like centralization played a certain kind of role in keeping taxes low. But you could also flip the script and say, if there had been an a priori strong commitment to keeping taxes rational in the Bavarian sense, and like keeping you know, keeping taxes more or less uh, equal to what you actually need to spend to maintain your power, if you had made that commitment, then centralization could have played the opposite role. Right? Centralization could have actually enhanced uh, your ability to to you know, maintain a centralized database, to rationalize your taxes. Uh, to enhance your coercive power and so on and so forth. So, to some extent, the way that I see centralization is that centralized, centralization is, an, is kind of like an enhancer of ideological de- decisions that already have been made, right? So, if you decide to go for f- fiscal conservatism, then in many ways, that kind of centralization makes it much worse and makes your state much more limited. If, on the other hand, you go for a somewhat fiscally expansionist rationalist, like a fiscally rational state, uh, then centralization can be, a, you know, insofar as it's formalized and professionalized and there's better control, can be a virtue in allowing you to actually execute your commands and keep up with population growth. So there are different ways that centralization can play out in this. It all depends on what kind of ideology you embrace in the first place. Well, that's a great transition to the next uh, more kind of theoretical methodological question I want to ask. Now focusing on some some very interesting things you say in, in the last substantive chapter, uh, because there you introduce or come to a distinction between culture and ideology. Uh, and it's, it's, I think it's quite revealing of, again, the way your mind works, because something like culture would be, um, too easy, too hard to, you know, prove its relevance. Um, and, you know, something like Confucianism, which has been, you know, offered as a hypothesis before for, um, Chinese, let's say stasis. Although it's quite interesting that you close the book with uh, 
you know, by coming back to Confucianism. But in this last substantive chapter, you, you then, you know, focus us on something you say that's different, which is ideology. And that's really what the book's about, which is, you know, this, this say empirical mistake that's being made by elites, uh, it may have its origins in culture, but it's a distinct phenomenon, and you want to focus our attention on 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 it and on this se- second category, you know, subcultural maybe called ideology. So first, I want you to defend that, but I also want to get get at um, why you're so let's say quietistic in your theory of ideology, because it seems as if you know it the desire is to say, I've given an explanation uh, by recounting, you know, from the perspective of the actors, what, what, what this mistake was, uh, explaining that it had these effects. And then I'm, I'm done. And it, it, it seems as if other theories of ideologies want to understand their basis. Um, why, why they work, why they are so powerful, um, why they're so long lasting, um, including just for example, Marxist theories of ideology. Whereas yours is, let's say, um, in a way oriented towards pleasing these rationalists, just wanting to, you know, humbly introduce the possible relevance of uh, this ideology to explain something they can't. And so again, it's like an evasion of like this big debate. What is ideology? How does it work? How do we think about it in relation to other, its own causal determinants, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, so, so um, that's great. L- l- let me, let me say, like, I don't agree with the, the, the characterization of, of the book is not trying to explain where the ideology comes from. Like I thought that was the entire point of the book is to try to defend why this ideology uh, lasted so long, right? Cause they say what you will about the, let's call them vulgar economists. They, their gut instinct against my kind of story is that a, a set of mistaken empirical beliefs about the world can't last very long. The world's going to correct it. Right, like they really think that if you have wrong beliefs about how the world, the way the world works, the world's going to smack you in the face, and you're going to be forced to correct in, in in very short order. And the the middle chapters of the book are largely concerned with explaining how this mistaken belief that you get out of the maintain transition can last so long, and it has this entire array of institutional explanations. Uh, such that, for example, if you want to overturn the assumption that the peasantry won't won't tolerate greater taxes, you have to do land surveys. Or you, you have to actually figure out how much excess capacity there is to be taxed in the in the economy. But because the Qing State was so afraid of even giving off the hint of raising taxes, they swear off land surveys. Okay, let me interrupt because I totally grant all that. And and that's like once you're introducing the ideology as an important factor, you illustrate the ways in which it had effects. But I have in mind the passage on page 332.3 where you say, where you cite Michael Frieden and you say, um, what we do is um, when we're interested in explaining the ideology itself uh, is 
kind of report the self-expression of the ideologues themselves and, quote, be well on our way to offering a coherent explanation of it for outsiders, though that's those are your words. And so that's that's not what many people who are interested in the theory of ideology would do. Their central problem would be explaining its sources, including in background culture uh, and why in spite of, you know, these effects, it it has this, you know, staying power for those who are imprisoned by it. Right, right. But, but I, I thought that, like, I, I really thought that was what I was doing here in the book, right? So the, the origins of the ideology in the book are explained as exactly, as you say, background cultural assumptions about the moral anxiety over taxation. This is a 2,000-year Confucian tradition of feeling morally anxious over taxation. but because it's just a moral anxiety, it's not acted upon by political actors for most of imperial Chinese history. Otherwise, you can't explain why other Confucian dynasties all raised taxes at some point after mid-dynasty. In the Qing, however, that moral anxiety becomes something more, right? because it, it, it interacts with the very unique circumstances, well, the quite unique circumstances of, of the Ming-Qing transition in the sense that all of a sudden now you have a plausible highly politically salient example of what actually can go wrong if you raise taxes. Previously, the moral narrative of raising taxes is morally dubious, didn't quite have that, right? So it was just a moral exhortation. And I think as we all know, more like purely moral commandments don't have that, um, that much impact in politics. After the Ming-Sing transition, that moral commandment becomes merged with a with an empirical narrative that look at what happened to the late Ming once they raised taxes, the peasants killed them. If we raise taxes beyond a certain level, they're going to, they're going to kill us too. And the, it's the merger of that moral story um, with the empirical story that creates the ideology. And now this goes to what I define as an ideology. Like what, what, When I say an ideology, I mean, again, to largely follow freedom, um, a, systemic, a systemic worldview, a set of beliefs that mutually uh, reinforce and follow a, a largely co coherent internal logic. Right. It's and to have that kind of system, you gotta both be able to say what you want in terms of moral objectives, but also how to get there in terms of empirical understandings of the world. And only when you put those things together do you get what I really believe is a functional uh system of beliefs. Like only then is it truly systemic. That that's what makes it an ideology. But when you have those two things merged, that begins to explain why ideologies, once they fully form, are inherently quite powerful, right? Because it's a fully formed worldview that explains not just your normative commitments, but also the way you understand the world. And as we all know, human beings have massive self-confirmation bias just inherent in our behavior. And so once you're in that kind of track in which everything around you can be coherently explained through this worldview, it's very hard to break out of it. Right, so that's how I would get the story started. And then there's the question of how was this institution sustained? Like you get rid of the informational mechanisms like land serving that could actually challenge your empirical worldview. And so you 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 basically self-reproduce inst institutionally. So that's all part of it, right? So I think there is a deeper ideological story here. It's not just saying there's an here's an ideology, here's what it does economically. That's not really the point of the book. The point of the book is actually precisely to explain how this ideology came to be and how it was self-sustaining over 240 years, right? Speaking once again for the vulgar, I want to say that not only is often it 
reality will smack you in the face. But I think it is often our responsibility as the, as, among the vulgar to smack you, uh, to, to let you know when you're not being, you're not representing reality. But I have a question about the focus here um, uh, also, but it's coming in a different direction and maybe a little less theoretical and a little more kind of in the guts of the book, which, or the books, which is the two buckets focus on methods of capital accumulation. You're trying to explain like, why didn't like big fortunes come together to build, invest in big projects in China the way that they did in uh, Britain and Western Europe and then, or anywhere else in the world, yeah. Um, uh, and the two stories you focus on, one is about property markets and the second one's about the state. But I think that most people would start with the assumption that there's at least a third type of institution that would that works to gather together small fortunes and turn them into big fortunes. And this would be banks or modern finance, right? Which is that like that's kind of what a bank or a mar- or a bond market is on some level. It's like you divide people lend money or give money and then it, they collect it into bigger investment. And you've written about corporations specifically elsewhere, but. The absence of discussion of banks in this project, and a, the last project has a little bit of finance in it, um, but generally seems particularly weird uh, as a question of like history as presentism, which is I know is a debate you guys are both involved in, um, because so much of contemporary economic thinking about China, yeah, Sam's involved in that, uh, turns on the problems of its underdeveloped financial system. That like so we've been debating for years why is it that a growing Chinese, a growing developing country isn't getting capital inflows, but instead is running large trade surpluses. Um, and as well, you know, um, like why aren't isn't isn't the, the things with global capital going the other way? Um, uh, and one of the dominant stories is the absence of well-developed financial institutions. That even if you wanted to invest in Chinese people or American people or whoever wanted to invest in small business in China, there wouldn't be anywhere to send the money on some level. Um, and so why not make the absence of development of, and by the way, also the late period, again, I know you're talking about the whole period, but the late period where you see the big divergence is also the period where we see the development of modern finance, like the development of real modern sovereign uh, sovereign debt markets, the, the American development of municipal bond market, um, the development of international banks all happens in roughly the same period, the later part of the period you're talking about. So why not make the book about the absence of financial institutions? Right, right. So, so uh, by the book, I, I assume you mean the next book where I actually yeah, try to- right, sorry, that's what I meant. The next book, which is not about that either, as far as I know. No, well, the next book will be partially about that. Like, like banks are unavoidably part of the next book. Uh, but I do think that there's a simpler explanation for why China didn't have a sophisticated, a, a terribly large banking sector, which is you look at the way the banking sectors function elsewhere in the pre-industrial world, and they rely on usually one of two institutional conditions to really make large loans. One is when the state is involved and the state guarantees kind various kinds of things. Uh, and the state provides enough security for the banks so that they, they can function in this like more like more risk uh, assuming way. And the other is through large amounts of collateral, right? So banks lend, you know, like nearly all early modern banks will not give you any sizable loan without the use of heavy collateral. That's probably true of most modern banks too. But collateral is key. And you look at what are the sources of collateral in a pre-industrial economy, well, what is the single most important asset that holds its value compared to other assets? Well, it's land. Right, so the, the it's, it's a it's a more it's a more complicated story than just that, but the gist of I think what I'm going to say in the third book is that yes, banks mattered, and the lack of banks in China mattered, 
Uh, but for but to a large extent, once you have a really weak state paired with you know like unusually low levels of landed wealth accumulation in the economy, uh, the relative thinness of the Chinese financial institutions was relatively predetermined by those two functions. Right, like you didn't have a ton of state support, nor did you have a ton of collateral floating around in the economy. And so you put those things together, yeah, you don't get robust banking sectors. Corporations are different. Corporations aren't banks. Um, they don't require that kind of thing. They require a different kind of mechanism. As you know, I, I, I do, I, I've already written about that. So that's all, that's part of the narrative as well. All right. So we're going to conclude with a couple of questions about uh, constitutionalism and your, your kind of... Because this is the Yale Law School and we must talk about constitutionalism. Well, like, you talk you, about you it. You talk about it. That's uh, I do. I do. I, I, like guilty as charged. I, I like I couldn't resist my my Yale Law School contamination either. So I try never to, but you just you you asked for it, man. I mean, it's fair to you know remark that I had nothing to say about this topic before coming here and being you know told to teach it at constitutional law as my service class, and I remain uncontaminated. Well, at least I didn't have to teach procedure. You teach local government law. Like, how could you possibly not be contaminated? Do a little. Let go overboard. State constitutionalism. All right. So, I, you know, you say some things. You report that there's a debate about whether China had constitutionalism. Uh, and it just seems like it's a definitional question. And I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's anything else to it. And I, I also wondered... Um, if if we we took not the definition of constitutionalism that you cite, but a, a more historical one, like C. H. McElwain's uh, distinction between ancient and modern constitutionalism, then the problem solved in a sense. Uh, just to review, his his distinction is that you know in the pre-modern West uh, there was constitutionalism. The Greeks had it. Aristotle has a book, you know, translated as the Constitution of Athens. And it just means, you know, the constitutive, um, you know, f uh, beliefs and, and you know, legal f modes of a society uh, that, you know, make it what it is rather than some radically different uh, enterprise. And then the modern view would be we need to formally entrench certain you know, constraints on government. And the, the key criterion of modernity would be what Bruce Ackerman, you know, uh, embraces mistakenly as dualism uh, and says we need to informally entrench uh, and make difficult to change certain, the, certain commitments. And obviously the second isn't present in your case and around the world before modernity, including in the West, but the first is. So why, what's the problem exactly? Right. So, so my, my, the, so, okay. So you, you put your finger exactly on the, on, on the issue. It is a definitional debate. Um, so for the, the audience, the debate basically is, you know, like whether China had a constitu constitutional tradition, there are certain major scholars in China who believe that yes, it did. And there are lots of other scholars who believe that's ridiculous. Uh, in my case, given that, you know, like functionally speaking, the commitment to not raise agricultural taxes was a pretty darn fundamental commitment of the Qing state for all, nearly its entire history. 
it's especially interesting to ask whether you can somehow spin this as a constitutional commitment uh, of the Qing state that had deep ramifications for the, for, you know, like the, the, the backlash against that also produced the constitutional commitment towards statism and large states in the post-imperial era. And like every single Chinese state post-1911 is committed to developing strong state power and building a large state. And they largely do that because they thought the fundamental problem with Chinese society pre-1911 was the Qing state was too weak. So th this is kind of like a double constitutional question. You know, was the Qing refusal to tax a constitutional issue? Did it then, in its demise and the backlash to its demise, produce a new kind of constitutionalism uh, in like Republican and PRC China? Uh, so the, the definitional debate that Sam points out is, to me, I think I actually don't have a have much difficulty saying that I really think that only the second kind of constitutionalism should be called constitutionalism. And the reason is that the first kind of constitutionalism just basically is, you know, like what, okay, like what are the core challenges and what are the core conditions that constitute a state, that constitute a polity? Um, that those kinds of things pretty much by definition exist in any somewhat sophisticated polity. It just, but if, if that were the definition of constitutionalism, then by default, you know, every single major polity going all the way back to the Babylonians have a constitution. Because they all have, you know, clearly like relatively obvious major challenges that coordinate their politics and give it focus and so on and so forth. Um, the, so like, be, like, you know, between that, like, what's the difference between that definition of a constitution and just like fundamental politics of the state? It's not, there's not. I mean, you could use the translation regime for the word that like people translated as constitution and Aristotle's constitution of Athens. And it might be more apt, but again, I didn't make the translation. And, you know, you could say it's just really important what kind of regime type uh, like states have. And like Plato and Aristotle have regime typologies, and that's like the basis of political theory in the Western tradition. Okay, but but, but, but I also like like my response is that's great, but that just describes all, nearly all of political theory. Like any any country can give rise to these political theoretical questions, and you know, like in in that sense, like what's the use of saying th this is a like this is a constitutional regime, whereas that's not. They're all constitutional regimes, right? The 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 use of the modern definition of the constitution is that you can say some some fully functional political regimes are not constitutional regimes, and some are. Right? There, there's a there's a it, it helps with further narrowing down what exactly you're talking about, right? And for that kind of definition to really be of any use, then there must be, as you say, normative constraints, normative constraints uh, on state behavior. That's actually. Where I wanted to it's, take it's the question. It's formal constraint. Okay, but. I wanted to, to first of all, one of the fun, like the great funhouse mirror part of the last is that that bureaus of economic statistics become the most important state institutions, and like like you know, the Bill of Rights is like kind of a, a afterthought after the Bureau of Economic Statistics, and so this is something. By the way, I found very convincing, but I wondered a little bit whether. Even after, as you make the decision whether the Qing don't fall into the constitutional rather than non-constitutional camp, because all constitutional claims are both rely on both empirical and normative ideas, right? So, like, like the 
underlying idea of freedom of speech as quickly as kind of reconstituted in the early 19th century is like the good speech will beat bad speech idea, which is an empirical claim as well as a normative one. And similarly here, the belief in low taxation is a a uh, empirical belief that has heavy normative elements. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have come to rise without people also believing. And as you note throughout the period, like they're they're worried about repugnant rule, but they're also like think it's bad. Um, and so, to what extent is the is it like possible to distinguish between these as like idea? Uh, is it an ideal types type thing, or is it a um, because like it's hard for me to imagine a system that has. Uh, normative beliefs that are completely disassociated from, or that normative commitments are completely disassociated from empirical beliefs of any kind of, and similarly, ones that establish normative uh, uh, empirical expectations that are like really distant from having any like belief of the good. So like what gives? Oh, so so that that goes, I think like that begins the point point to kind of like a weakness of that part of my book, which is, uh, the way that I, I argued is that I think the real underlying rationality for the Qing to, to refuse to raise taxes was largely pragmatic and self-preservationist, right? It, it wasn't like the normativity was in the background. It was part of the origin story of how the ideology came to be. But by like 1700, it doesn't play much of a real salient role in Qing fiscal politics anymore. And so and the, the pragmatic preservationist side of things takes over. And so, therefore, I say that this is not really a formal formal normative commitment of the of the state. It's just like a practical, like ongoing, so, like constantly self reinforced equilibrium of behavior of, of political behavior. It's not normative in the sense that it doesn't become kind of like a normative goal in and of itself in some ways. Um, but you're right. Like like perhaps that's selling the normative underpinnings of the idea short like it it's undeniably true that without the kind of background moral anxiety over taxes that had existed in confucian thought for 2000 years it probably wouldn't have this empirical belief in the first place because it was it was created out of, out of confirmation bias backed up by the normative beliefs so in that sense if you dig dig, dig further down maybe like one or two levels yeah this is a normative commitment as well, just the normativity is a bit more in the background. But then if that's the case, right, then you can kind of say what makes constitutions constitutions in the modern world is, you know, if you're a certain kind of legal formalist, or even a semi-legal formalist like Anna Markowitz is, then what you're saying is the, the salience of the normativity has to be relatively high for something to be considered a constitutional norm as opposed to just like some kind of background political belief that shapes politics. Sam is shaking his head. Well, I just don't understand now. I mean, what, you know, on the definition I introduced, which is this McIlwain one, it's it, 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 all constitutionalism is normative. What regime we have as opposed to some other kind is, is, is partly normative. But what distinguishes modern constitution is, is not its normativity, but formal entrenchment of rules. And of course, those are partly normative commitments, but their distinctive feature is that they're formally entrenched uh, and made at least a little harder to change than ordinary law. Right, but so, so this is where I'm not necessarily sure I, I buy exactly that conceptual distinction. Maybe it's actually like a three different, there, there are three different conceptions of constitutionalism floating around in this conversation of ours. One is the, you know, like the, the, the ancient constitutional 
like constituting the state kind of definition. But for that, I'm not like I'm not necessarily persuaded that that kind of constituting effect necessarily has to be normative. It could just be pragmatic. You know, I, I suspect you're the kind of person that doesn't believe in any large scale coordinated pragmatic action in the absence of normativity at all. Like, hence your 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 Correct. dismissiveness of vulgar economists. Some of us think that's possible, at least as a matter of like human behavior. Right, like we think it's possible for humans to coalesce around a pattern of political behavior out of pragmatic concerns instead of normative ones. You would dispute that, but you know, like just granting me my my mistaken beliefs, you can see the conceptual difference between that kind of constituting yes. the state act and a normative and, and a normative act of constituting. I, I see. Right, and then the normative act of constituting is then further differentiated from the formal institutionally entrenched definition that's the most modern, right? like formal constitution, constitutions being passed as a matter of law and being entrenched and being legitimated as a, as, as formal law. Um, if that were the definition, then yeah, of course there is no constitution in this hit. It's it's a trivial question, but the more interesting question is: Are there fundamental, deep normative worldviews? That act that have the same functionality as a like formal formally entrenched constitution, and then you have to get into the get get, um, get into the realm of normativity. I think, and there again, like my argument remains, I don't think that this was at least as a, as a matter of obvious political salience a set of normative commitments. It was more a set of pragmatic considerations that were deeply entrenched in, in the political in the political psyche, but were not treated as normative ends per se. Well. Taisu, this was so fun. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. This was a, a real, a really, really rich discussion, and uh, um, and we're just waiting for it to see how many more movie references Sam can make. So, other than that, uh, but it was it was really uh, it was really a delight. So, thank you so much. Thanks, Taisu. All right, thank you.